Well, we've been in a three-part ser- series called Building Blocks, How to Read the Bible. And so we've been going through uh, a number of ways to do that. We've been looking at some of the genres of Scripture, some of the um, kind of uniqueness that Scripture brings in terms of the way it was written, how it was compiled, and how we read it now, even though we are thousands of years removed from the final writings of this book. And so there's always this challenge when we have that of lots of time that goes on that challenges our sense and our ability to interpret. Um, That there is probably a saying that you have from your generation um, that is not necessarily like understood the same way for my generation or for the younger generation. Um, We were, I was in Alberta a little while ago uh, for a family reunion. And we, my whole family, so like me, my two sisters, my parents, their kids, their spouses, all the things, we're all together in one big VRBO. And they had like a a great little spot that had like kids' toys and all these things. And um, my littlest niece, she grabs this thing out and she's kind of like like toiling around. She's like walking with it. I'm like, Maya, what is that? And she's like, I don't know. And she's like one of those things that pop as you go. It's like the pop, 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 pop. And she's holding a phone receiver in her hand. And I go to her, Maya, what do you do with that? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you do with it? She's like, I don't know. It just makes noise. I'm like, but do you know what that is? No. I'm like, Maya, that's a phone. She's like, no, it's not. (laughs) I'm like, yes, it is. How do you answer your phone? And she goes, hello? Not with the receiver, but with her like fake iPhone. And so there's all of these things that we maybe understand in our time and in our culture that the next generations don't. And so that's sometimes a challenge that we have with coming to scripture is that it's not just about iPhones versus like an actual receiver pickup phone, um, but it's like thousands of years of time and of understanding and of um, kind of culture and context that we kind of have to bridge the gap of. And that can feel like an incredible challenge um, gapping like thousands of years of time um, and, and context and the development of language and um, culture and, and all of that can feel incredibly difficult. And it is if we do it on our own. But the great thing is we've already gone through the idea that, you know, we have community together around us that comes around us, that helps us, that those who are maybe further in faith or who know their Bibles a little bit better or who know that truth a little bit more can guide us and help shape us and help teach us. And that's one of the ways that we don't bridge those gaps on our own. But there's an incredibly important piece that we are missing so far in our journey of these past two weeks uh, that is incredibly important for how we understand and read scripture. And so we're going to get to that, um, but there's a couple more pieces of um, literature that I want to go through that uh, is important to just give some guidelines of in terms of how we understand them, how we read our Bibles, because there are some genres that I think more than others can be really misunderstood. Uh, We talked about some of the wisdom literature last week. Um, One of the other ones, I think, is apocalyptic literature. Now, when I say that, it sounds scary. Like, an apocalypse is like Armageddon in our understanding. Like, we, when we think of apocalypse, it's like, I don't know, that zombie movie that we watched or something like that. But one of the apocalyptic literature books of the Bible is the book of Revelation. 
And so there's always a question. I've had this question, and I still have this question, is what and how do you read the book of Revelation? Because there's lots of symbols, there are lots of pictures, there are lots of eyeballs of, like, angels in there, and numbers, and all of these things. And it can be this incredibly, like, strange world that you find in Revelation. Like, the, the writer of it, John, was exiled to Patmos. He was, like, all on his own. And so I'm like, was, was John just a little bit, like, loopy? Like, did he spend too much time all on his own on Patmos? And so he had all these weird things. But it's not true because it's the truth uh, for you and I today. And so there's always this question, is do you read it as a letter? Well, part of it is. Do you read it as an epistle, which is uh, like a teaching to people? Do you read it as prophecy of what's to come and maybe what has already happened? Well, the reality is it's all of them. Apocalyptic literature, specifically with Revelation, is all of those things. It's a letter, it's an epistle, it's prophecy. It's all of those things. And so because of that, it makes it a little bit more challenging to understand. Now, I talked about it being apocalyptic literature, um, and this is one of those moments that our understanding of the word apocalypse and the Greek understanding of apocalypse is very different. And so when we think this, actually the original name of Revelation was the apocalypse of Jesus. And so that sounds like heavy metal. When you hear that, you're like, whoa, like we are going for it, the apocalypse of Jesus. But when you understand the Greek word for apocalypse, which is apocalypso, it simply just means to reveal or to uncover. So it's not this like Armageddon, like crazy flames and blowing up things and all this stuff. It's actually just the revelation, which is where we get that, that word from, or the uncovering of Jesus. And so that was what it was originally called. And so we get to see this book written by Paul or by John as the revealing or uncovering of Jesus's final plan for humanity. And that should help guide us and help us understand the book, because I think we can often interpret this text too literally. There's um, great heresies of uh, the Christian faith that have taken some things out of Revelation and, and taken it too literally, like the 144,000 that other uh, like Christian cults would believe is the exact number of people that are going to make it to heaven, which like... That's pretty, like, slim pickings, and so, um, like, that's not very hopeful, at least to me. Um, and so there are some times where we can take the book of Revelation and we interpret it too literally. And so we have all these moments that we can see and, and attribute numbers and things and all these things, but we interpret it way too literally sometimes. And that can sometimes be hard. Sometimes I think in our uh, tradition we can be nervous about interpreting things not literally, um, which is not to say that we are watering down or negating or diluting um, that scripture is true and, and useful and inerrant and helpful to us, but we just recognize that not all of it was to be taken literally. That, again, we talked about that with some of the literary devices that uh, we see throughout all of scripture. The other thing that uh, when I was in hermeneutics classes that my professor said is to set a modest goal for revelation. Um, which I think is helpful because I think that we can kind of read this book and there are parts of it that are like, wow, like this is, how am I supposed to understand all of this? And so I encourage you as you read that last book, which sometimes people shy away from because it is confusing and it is strange and I have been one of those people, um, to set a modest goal. Don't eat the elephant in one bite. Take it one piece at a time and understand that piece and that piece and that piece so that you can understand the whole of it in time. But characteristics of apocalyptic literature include a description of the events surrounding the end of world history, so that is actually part of it. Um, but unfortunately, apocalyptic literature has become extremely polarized. 
It's become extremely polarized because I interpret that end time different than somebody else, or I interpret the signs of the times differently than somebody else. And so it's become this extremely polarizing thing, and I don't think that's the intention of Revelation. I don't think the intention of Revelation is to polarize people across the like genre of interpretation. It may be, yes, to uh, divide the wheat from the chaff and divide those who are faithful truly to God's word and those who are maybe just not. Um, but I don't think it's there to polarize those who are believers into being on far camps from each other that kind of seek to just hurt and, uh, you know, digress on things, to poke uh, holes in other people's like thoughts so that we can just continue to be more disunified. I don't think that's the purpose of Revelation. And so I think that this has caused a fundamental misunderstanding of this type of literature and actually the end times. The end times uh, has been happening since Jesus came, like, returned to heaven after he was with the apostles. And that end times has been slowly coming to the end time. And so we have these cycles that go on over and over and over until the last cycle at the very end of time. And so we are actually living in those end times. Now, that shouldn't scare us because we know that we have the blessed hope of assurance, that we have Jesus, that he is ours. Um, if anything, I think that should encourage us to be missional in how we communicate God's word because there are some people who don't know that blessed assurance. Um, but we are kind of going through cycles. And so there are times when the book of Revelation has been fulfilled, but then there are also times in where it will still again be fulfilled in future. But Revelation had to make sense to its first readers. And that's an important piece, that context, that historical piece is so important for Revelation because we often attribute like things here in our very like right and now to things of Revelation. Like I've heard things like the United States is the new Jerusalem. Well, the new, like the United States was not around when John wrote the book of Revelation. And so it had to make sense to its original hearers. And so there's applications that change, but it did need to make sense to its first readers. And so we need to be thoughtful about that. And sometimes we like throw out the context with Revelation um, because we want to contextualize it too much for our right here, right now. But Revelation needs to be interpreted in its historical background to actually see what the situation was with Christians then, because nothing is new under the sun. And so likely it's probably the same with us too. Now, there are some theological principles of Revelation uh, that are important to understand without being bogged down in the details. The question that I would encourage you to ask when you read Revelation is, what does the text say as a whole? I think we piecemeal and pull apart these like really minute, really small pieces of Revelation without looking at the 50,000-foot view. And so the question to ask when we read and come to Revelation or other apocalyptic literature is, what is the text about as a whole? What does this whole book say about God, about us, about our current state? And then to determine which figurative sense the symbol has in a larger context. Now, I am not somebody who will like be able to tell you every single symbol of the thing, um, but there are great uh, scholars and commentary writers and faithful uh, people of the word who know and can attribute and can explain those things because much of it was written to a Jewish audience or, or those who had converted from Judaism. And so there's all of those pieces that are part of it. And so it does seem like it's a very complex book. And the reality is it is. And so we need to chunk it slowly rather than eating the whole thing at once. But there's also a pastoral aspect to the book of Revelation. Um, Daryl Johnson, who is an incredible scholar, he is a great pastor, uh, he has written countless books, he actually refers often to the book of Revelation as the fifth gospel. Because the first gospels were 
the coming of Jesus, the hope that we have, the good news that Jesus has come to put uh, end to sin and death and died on a cross so that he could make that perfect sacrifice. And Daryl Johnson would say that there's a pastoral aspect in the book of Revelation because it's the good news of Jesus coming again. So we have the first four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that show Jesus coming first to, to uh, solve the problem of sin that none of us could. But that revelation is him coming back again to restore all things new. And I think that's the, the beautiful picture that we get to see with Revelation. It's not the, the crazy, freaky angels with like 7,000 eyeballs and all the things. While that's important to understand those, I think we need to understand the larger context of Revelation, which is that Jesus is coming again. And he is coming to make a final uh, claim over death and sin, that he's coming to uh, remove his people from this world that is tainted by sin so that he can create a new one and that we can exist with him in the intention that he always had for us at the very beginning of Genesis 1, where he placed, where he created, where he placed man and woman in the garden in perfection to be with him to work and to toil together, not in a way that um, depletes us, but in a way that contributes to a world that is renewed and new and perfect. And that's the incredible gift that we have in Revelation. It's not the doom and the gloom and the finger pointing and the exclusion of others that is actually the focus of Revelation and that often happens when we read Revelation, but it's actually good news for you and I. And it's good news for a world that desperately needs to know about that Savior who has already come as Emmanuel, God with us, and who is coming again to bring us into full restoration. And so that's the incredible picture of Revelation that we get to see. That's the incredible picture of most apocalyptic literature, is that we very easily focus on like doom and gloom and blah, and like it's this horrible thing. But we forget to see that there's incredible hope at the end of every apocalyptic literature. And that's the hope that we hold on to. That's the hope that hopefully we will share with others. That's the hope that we carry with us every single day by the Spirit. So that's the incredible gift of apocalyptic literature is that it's good news. It's not bad news, which I think we often do. It's good news. And so that's kind of the revelation uh, aspect, apocalyptic literature, the uncovering of Jesus again uh, to come back. And then we have prophetic literature, which is kind of similar. There's oftentimes prophecy and apocalypse. Um, but again, this is one of those genres that I think are often misunderstood. It's one of those ones that um, we can kind of get confused with. I know I do, um, because in the Hebrew Bible, the prophetic literature, or the prophets, we find them in the Old Testament, they form the second, uh, they form the second section of the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. It's sandwiched between the law and the writings. Uh, the latter prophets consisted of the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, and here's the thing with the Old Testament is that prophetic utterances or prophetic words dominate the Old Testament. We see that not just in prophetic literature, but we see that with Nathan, for instance, uh, when he comes to David after he sinned with Bathsheba and uh, shows his sin and reveals that to him and calls him to repentance. So we see that outside of prophetic literature, but also um, within it as well. And it dominates the Old Testament. Where in the New Testament, those there are some prophecies, of course, um, but it's not as prominent in the New Testament as it is the Old Testament. Now, why is this? Well, partly it's because the proclamation and preaching of God's word took the function of prophecy in the New Testament. So the prophetic word is just like a, uh, it's not necessarily a forth telling 
like it was in the Old Testament, but prophetic words in the New Testament are actually just a passioned call of God's people to action in some way through God's word and by God's word and under God's word. And so that's why we don't necessarily see like the New Testament prophetic books, um, because that preaching of God's word, that communicating of it is in its sense a type of prophecy. And so that's where we see it most often in the New Testament is, for instance, in Acts 2 when, uh, when Peter comes and he gives the first sermon. That is a prophetic word for the people to turn from their sin. And we see that thousands of people were added that day. Though the function of prophecy in the New Testament is not foretelling, but it's rather inspired speech. And so that's why we see uh, an impassioned response of God's people. Now, the function of it ch didn't change. That's the same thing with the Old Testament. Is the main function of prophecy uh, is not for, for preaching or it's Sorry, it's for preaching or proclamation, not prediction. And that's, I think, often what we see is we see these, like, predictions, and it kind of feels like uh, allowable Christian, like, sorcery, where we see this, like, looking into the crystal ball, and, like, we see this moment. But the reality is with prophecy is there is a foretelling that looks forward as to what's going to happen, but there's also an inspired speech to change. Because oftentimes prophecy or prophetic literature came because there was economic upset, uh, there was religious oppression, there was uh, blatant and, uh, and like chaotic sin of God's people. And so a prophet would come to pronounce judgment on that, of course, because we need people to speak that uh, over us sometimes, but also to call them to repentance. And that is what the function of the prophecy primarily is. It's to call God's people to fidelity to him, to, pro to repentance, to living a life alongside of the ways that he has. And so it's primarily used for preaching or proclamation, not necessarily prediction, though there is some of that. Its primary purpose is to renounce sin, to promote repentance, to encourage loyalty, fidelity, and obedience to God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's how we read the Old Testament prophets is that for us, we see the state of the people. We see the state of God's people. We see their sinful nature. We see the oppression that has come to them. And we see that God delivers them from all of that. And that's the same thing as we interpret it. It's not just that they had that issue, but that we are sinful people. That we need people to come and call us to repentance sometimes. That we need people to stand in the gap when we are going astray and call us back to, to right relationship and fidelity and right pathway with Jesus. And so that's, the, that's how we read prophecy, uh, both in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Its primary purpose is not to announce the future or to establish a calendar of end-time events, but it's actually to call us to repentance, even now. And so I want to encourage you to keep this principle in mind when we read uh, some of the prophetic literature, that some predictions may have a double meaning or a double fulfillment. So there are moments where some prophecies have been fulfilled. We see that, of course, with Jesus. Um, but there are some prophecies of certain people or certain moments in history that happened that had its fulfillment. So a lot of that, like one of those examples is Nero. Um, but then there's another fulfillment that it may have. And so while a prophecy may already be um, shown and, and fulfilled, there may be another fulfillment that comes the way, its way as well. And so the interpreter, you and I, as we read our Bibles, must let the text, rather than the current events of today, determine our interpretation. Again, we like to kind of overlay uh, a lot of our world events to certain prophetic literature, but again, that's reading meaning onto the text. And so we want to have reading come from the text. That may still be applicable, of course, to our time and to our day and to our context and our culture, 
but not in a way that reads it on top of, but that re reads out of Scripture. And so that's some of the um, challenging kind of pieces of Scripture that I think can often be misunderstood or, or taken out of context or used in a way that it was never intended. Um, and so how do we, like, find those faithful people who maybe are people around us, but who maybe are scholars or people who have um, kind of more knowledge or more understanding or training than us. Of course, we all uh, have the ability to understand God's word, but there are some people who have dedicated their lives to scholarly research on it, and that's often through commentaries. Commentaries are a valuable aid in, in resourcing our understanding of scripture. Um, whenever we write sermons, for instance, here, uh, at Evangel is we always use commentaries because we know that we may like know some stuff about the Bible, but that there are scholars and people who are far wiser than us, who are far more experienced and who are far more knowledgeable. And so we pull from their collective wisdom and their collective knowledge of the Bible to help aid us. And so we're not the people that come up and give these sermons and that have all of the things known. We take like this huge, massive piece of like research and we like scrunch it down into like a one little like 35 minute moment because it helps guide us and help us in our understanding of scripture too. This is again one of the ways that we use the community to help interpret scripture is we rely on each other sitting in these seats, but we rely on the greater cloud of witnesses to also help inform us about scripture as well. Now, it may be hard. You may be thinking like, well, I don't have commentaries. I didn't go to Bible college. I don't have any of those resources for me. Um, and so I want to just give you some places that you can find them. The first one is the internet, um, which is always good. Now, I will say that I have noticed even over my time here that internet commentary resources are actually becoming more and more difficult to find. They were very like open source. You could get all of them. You could find all of them. And it's actually becoming more and more limited. There <laughs> have been like copyrights issues and uh, people suing people and, you know, all the things. And so it's actually really hard. It's actually becoming harder and harder to find uh, it on the internet. But if you Google it, you will find ones uh, there. My favorite in terms of a quick Google search is a man named David Guzik. I'm sure you've heard um, countless quotes from me over my time here of him because uh, he's a really accessible one to find. Next place is our offices. So uh, we did go to Bible college, and so we have those commentaries, not all of them. Um, but if you ever like reading through a piece of scripture, you can't quite understand what's going on. I mean, of course, we would love to have a conversation, but we could always point you to a commentary or resource in our libraries as well. Um, of course, there's Christian bookstores. You can find them. Uh, another great one is a study Bible. Um, and so I love that they're like the big beefy ones that like you look like a super Christian if you hold. Um, <laughs> But those are actually really helpful because they contain kind of like a verse-by-verse -verse, um, explanation of things. It often gives you an introduction at each book of the Bible that gives you context and setting and characters and all of this stuff. Um, and so if you both want to learn about the Bible and look like a super Christian, a study Bible is always the way to go. And then there's software. Like uh, Pastor Lucas and Lisa have uh, something called Logos, which is uh, either a free up to a paid kind of subscription. And so there are many ways that we can find those commentaries. Now, I want to encourage you in ways to use them, because I think this is the, uh, the pull with commentaries, is that we read a piece of scripture once and we're like, oh, I got to go to my commentaries. Like, I got to see what so-and-so says about that. Oh, I wonder what William Barclay says. And while that's not inherently bad, I want to just encourage you to read that text over and over and over again, like I said a couple weeks ago, before you go to a commentary. 
Now, why? Like, what does it matter? Well, because you are developing your mind. You are developing your ability to read scripture. You are going to read that over and over and pick out things that are important, that the Spirit illuminates for you, that um, you see when you read kind of before what text you're reading and then after. And so I think it um, can sometimes be easy for us to just go right to the commentators, but they're fallible people. They don't always get it right either. We are fallible people as we are on stage here, and so we don't always get it right either. And so sometimes we make the gospel truth be other people's words about the book of the Bible rather than the Bible itself. And so while I think they're important to use and they have value to us, I think we need to use them in its proper uh, place and context. Otherwise, we begin to kind of make gospel truth other people's words who are fallible humans just like you and I. And so I want to encourage you to read and read and to pray uh, to ask God to illuminate that by the Spirit to you. And then, as a result, you can use those commentaries to maybe uh, see if you're on the right track, to maybe see a different perspective or a different facet of that uh, particular text that kind of helps bring the fullness of color, the fullness of that tapestry together. And so there are some incredible uh, resources that we have in our open source world uh, to be able to find studies. Now, not all of them are good, um, so I'm not going to like say that every commentary you find online is going to be beneficial, which is why we need to be the Berean scholars who search the scriptures and see what is true and see if it's right for ourselves as well. And we need to test those things. But we have an incredible opportunity to find like so many resources on how to study the Bible and even on Bible books as well, in case we're kind of coming to the end of our limit of knowledge and understanding. And so that's just a resource that you can use um, it's an incredibly helpful one. It helps me. Um, and I think that sometimes we think it's only kept for like scholars or pastors who have to preach on a Sunday morning, but it can be just as valuable for you too. Um, and so I want to encourage you that if you're like looking for a commentary, if you don't know one, if you're kind of confused about what to choose, uh, we love having those conversations in our office. And so please come by. We would love to help kind of like direct you to a particular spot. Now, finally, I said that we have community to help uh, guide us in our understanding and reading the Bible, to help build those blocks together with us. But I would be really remiss if I didn't mention the actual one who is the one who illuminates Scripture, and that's the Spirit. Because as much as we have God's Word that's before us and that we have accessible, as much as we have each other who are wise and who journey with us and help sharpen and shape us, all of those things are deficient without the Spirit. Those things do not matter without the Spirit of truth illuminating Scripture for us. And so while we may be on our own or feel like we're on our own when we are reading our Bibles at home, studying it, trying to understand it, you are not. Because you have the Spirit of truth within you if you are a believer in Jesus today. And He is the Spirit of truth. And he is the one who guides us and who illuminates scripture, who guides us into all truth. And so I would be so remiss if I were to finish our time about how to read the Bible without mentioning the spirit that inspired that work in all of his people that wrote it. Because we are not the ones that illuminate scripture. I, as I stand on this platform, am not the one that illuminates scripture. Any pastor that comes up here or any person that comes up here that they are not the ones that illuminate scripture. We are the ones who present it. We are the ones who are custodians of it. 
but the Spirit is the one who illuminates it. The Spirit is the one who brings it to us, that makes it relevant, that uh, moves our hearts to repentance or to change or to be encouraged, to be uh, to lift our heads because we read those words of that person in the Bible that had the same struggle as us. And so I am not the one that illuminates Scripture. When you're in small groups or uh, community groups, you, that community group leader is not the one who illuminates Scripture. It is the Spirit of Truth who does. And so Spirit-led and Spirit-sensitive reading of the Bible and study of the Bible is the actual, actually the only way in which life-transformative truth is revealed in Scripture. Because without the, without the Spirit, the Bible is just another book. It's just another kind of catalog of stories. But with the Spirit, it is life and life abundant. It is transformation. It is the re revelation of God's plan for humanity and plan for redemption. And that's the spirit that does it, not anybody here on a stage. Because we have this value as one of our very first values here at Evangel, that engaging biblical truth will change your life. And that's a value that we hold because we believe that the spirit of truth is here uh, revealing scripture, illuminating it to it, moving hearts, encouraging you, giving you those words to say uh, when you read that Bible. Like, who reads books over and over and over again? I know there are some people in the room, including myself. I love to read a book over and over. But there are many of us who read a book and then never read it again. We put it on the shelf, we give it to somebody else, we recycle it to some, like, auxiliary shop or, or uh, place that I don't know, takes books nowadays, where is that? But maybe the library? I don't know. Um, where we get rid of it. And yet, when we read the Bible, we read it over and over and over and over and over, and it's the spirit of truth that illuminates new things and makes it fresh and makes it living, makes it active and makes it satisfying for our souls, that makes it transformative for our lives. And so the tools that we've just gained over the last three weeks those tools in our tool belts, those building blocks, they are just that. They're simply just a framework of how we partner well with the spirit of truth when we read our Bibles. And so these things that we've just seen over the past three weeks will not do anything for us unless we are partnered with the spirit in doing it with him. Because the Holy Spirit is the divine agent of inspiration. Second Peter uh, 1 verse 21 says, for prophecy had net... Well, for prophecy never had origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along in the Holy Spirit. And so we see that he is the one who is the divine agent of inspiration from all the way at the beginning of Genesis, all the way to the end of Revelation and onward as we read those books too. Because at the end of the apostolic age, which was like the New Testament, the spirit did not abandon his word. He didn't abandon his word and just pass it off to the custody of the church. Though the church is the custodian of the word, we've talked about that. The word isn't the church's. It remains God's word. It does not become the church's word because the spirit is the one who has inspired it, not us. It, of course, has its origin in God. All scripture is God-breathed. That's what we opened our time together two weeks ago with. Um, it's spiritual, so it satisfies not just our minds, but our spirits and our emotions and our will and our desires. The interpreter, you and I, is also spiritual. And so, of course, we have the spirit within us. And so there's a spiritual aspect that we carry. And it must be spiritually appraised. So there must be. That's the testing of God's word. But it is the spirit that does all of those things as we partner with him. 
And so these are some tools that we've gained in our tool belt. And as we kind of close our time together, I want to read Psalm 51. Because this is one of the passages of scripture that inspired fear in me, that inspired a sense of fright and and being afraid of God and being afraid of things. And I'll tell you why. I want to read it to you. It says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. And this is the part that scared me. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Capital H, capital S, the person of the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Uh, You who are my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Up until a very short time ago, an embarrassingly short time ago, I read that passage and I was always so afraid. Because David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so when I read that, when I read that writing in the Bible, I thought the Holy Spirit can be taken away from me when I sin. And so every time I sinned, I would have this intense fear that God's spirit would leave me and I would be left empty. That if I sinned, I had to hide it so that God didn't know, even though he did. And so that other people didn't know because that Holy Spirit would be taken from me. That it would be removed from me never again to be resolved or or to be given back. And so I grew up with this fear that if I sinned, that spirit would be taken from me. The Holy Spirit, the one who is like my life energy would be taken from me. And so I was always so afraid of it until I read another translation. It's the NLT. And on there, it has a superscript. Where it has a superscript, you follow the little one down to the bottom of your Bible. And it says, or the spirit of holiness. Lowercase s, lowercase h. Spirit of holiness. And it's such a small distinction, but it relieved that fear within me because I realized that it's not the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit, that is going to be removed from me, but it's the Spirit, the desire for holiness towards God and, and, and walking towards righteousness that I can trample as I sin, that I can sear my consciousness as I sin. And so I was always so afraid of the Holy Spirit being taken from me and being being left alone and never being like my salvation being taken away and my inheritance and the receipt of the Spirit being taken away until I read that superscript and I realized that that's not what this passage is about. Yes, of course, in the Old Testament, there was a vocational aspect of the Spirit empowerment where those who God raised up 
yes, would have the spirit and we see it taken away from Saul or from Samson. But my fear was that it would be taken from me too. But I know that that's not the case because of that other translation that I read that relieved that fear. That yes, I still have a desire to not be sinful. I still have a desire to walk in holiness, but I have a lack of fear because I realize that it's the spirit of holiness that can be taken from me, not the Holy Spirit. And it's such a minor distinction that seems so like inconsequential, and yet it's consequential to everything. It's consequential to our future and our hope and our salvation if we read it that way. And so that is why we need to be good scholars of the word. That is why we need to have tools in our tool belt because the spirit in that moment brought such a sense of relief to me because I was no longer afraid of losing my salvation every time I sinned, but that I could realize that that spirit of holiness, that spirit of desire to be right with God and walk in his ways could be restored to me and may be trampled on my own doing, but that it could always be given back to me. So it's a minor distinction. It seems so like insignificant and yet it means everything. And so this is why we need to be good scholars of the word. This is why other translations help us. This is why we need to walk together because I know that the spirit of God is with me. Even though I have sinned, his grace is sufficient for it. Even though I've walked away from him and done things that I know that I shouldn't, that I know that his forgiveness is for me again. And so no longer when I read that, did I live in a sense of like fear and, and like horror that that spirit of salvation would be taken from me, but instead that I had that relief of knowing that God will forgive me, of knowing that that Holy Spirit as a person won't be taken from me, but that my desire for him can be restored. And so that's why we need to be good stewards of the word. That's why we need to be good scholars of the word as we study, because it means that we can go astray. It means that we can learn things about God that are not actually even true of him. And so today we're going to sing a song as we close called Spirit of the Living God. Because I want that spirit to be the one that empowers us. I want that spirit to be the one that illuminates scripture to us. I want the spirit to be the one that we look to and partner with as we read our Bible so that we can experience life and restoration and transformation and shaping beyond just behavior modification, but through deep and transformative power within us because that is the only way that anything that we do with God's word is gonna be effective for us or for our world or for anybody else around us. And so this is the person that I want us to focus on because it is the person who is the spirit of truth. And so let's stand together, let's sing this song um, and reflect on that spirit of truth as we kind of close our time together in building some building blocks. Well, this is my swan song. Because uh, this is the last time that I get to address you here on this stage as pastoral staff. And I've been thinking a lot about what I wanted to say, because I think last words are important. Uh, now I'm not, I'm not dying, so don't worry. Um, but I think last words are important. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that the only thing that I can really say that's going to last beyond my time here is to continue to be faithful to God's word. That this church has had a rich incredible history of being faithful to each other, of being faithful to this community, of being faithful to God's word. And it is that word, and it is that spirit who reveals God's word that will last far beyond any of our time. That is the gift that we get to give to each other 
And it's the gift that we get to give as inheritance to the generations to come. And so I could say all the things and I could do all the things and I could get hyped and I could get excited. But I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful to God's word, to charge you to continue to love it, to continue to cherish it, to continue to be transformed by it, to perhaps have your mind changed as you reveal, as truth is revealed to you, to step into that moment of being courageous and changing your mind. Because fidelity to God's word will always last far beyond anything that we could do here. Because his word is eternal. His word never comes back void. Ours do, but his word never comes back void. And so continue to be faithful learners and scholars of God's word. Because it will truly transform your life. I've seen it in each one of you. That I've had the chance to do life with that it has transformed people here in this room. And I believe it will transform generations to come as well. And so to continue, so continue to cherish and hold that, to continue to build and, and create and have those building blocks for yourself, but to think of who you can pass those building blocks on to. Because there's a world and a, and a generation and a society that desperately needs those words. And so I'm thankful for you, for the legacy that's already been laid here, for the generations of people who have already been transformed by the word of truth that has been preached and shared and lived through each one of you by the Spirit. And I want to encourage you to do the same, because that is a beautiful and incredible legacy that we all get to leave in each other and in our world. And so thank you for allowing me to muscle through these moments of communicating God's word to you, of standing with me when my sermons weren't great, and even when they were, because it's not my words that I want to be left with you. It's God's and the spirit of truth and his word that I hope is implanted in your heart today and continue to will and will continue to be after all of our time is up and we meet him again. So let's pray. God, we thank you that the spirit of truth is here. It's among us, it's within us. It's revealing Jesus to each one of us. And so God, I pray that we would continue to be faithful scholars of your word. That we'd be people who cherish and love it for ourselves because we know it's the transformation for our lives. But that beyond that, it's a transformation for our generation in our world that is dying, that is living in darkness, that is far from you and doesn't even know what and who you are. And so God, as much as these are building blocks that we've built and that you've built within us actually for our lives, may we see it as an opportunity to share with other people because they need it, because we need that transforming word. And so God, we thank you for your, your word, for the scriptures, and that they contain life and light and freedom for us because they reveal you and your plan for us as humanity and your plan for redemption for, for all of humanity, for all of our world. And so God, we don't take this lightly. We don't take your word for granted, but we say, thank you, Spirit of God. We're hanging on every single word that you speak because it is life for each one of us. So God, may we continue to be inspired by your spirit, to be courageous as we open your word and be transformed by that truth. God, we love you and we thank you. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you so much, friends, for joining this morning. So appreciate you being with us. Uh, I pray that you are blessed as you go on this Sunday um, and that you have some time to share in God's word with those around you. God bless you. Have a great Sunday, and we will see you again hopefully next week.